All year long on this show, we're exploring what it takes to create consistently great work. Not one-hit wonders, not random acts of creativity, and definitely not all the shortcut culture out there, the hacks, the cheats, the get-there-quick schemes, no. And so far, we've learned a ton all year in 2019 through several stories and a few Creative Cafe mini-series episodes. That's where we have really honest, behind-the-scenes conversations with who I think are some of the most brilliant creators in the world who aren't famous, but they're amazing at their craft. Uh, We try to learn from them about what it takes to create consistently. So you have stories, but then you have people who are capable of addressing directly these themes. So between those two types of episodes, we've learned a ton. And if you've missed any of them, make sure you go back and start to, to binge listen. Because today we're building off of a lot of that stuff. And so far, none of that stuff has shaken me from my central thesis of what it takes to create consistently great work. I started out thinking that we need to master the art of reinvention because consistently great work consistently changes. How we make others feel stays the same. How we feel towards the work stays the same. The growing results continue, but the vehicle to deliver all of that necessarily needs to change and evolve and update and and get refreshed. That's the big idea here. We need to refresh the work. We need to become masters of reinvention. But one major obstacle that we keep encountering, that I keep hearing about from you, is this idea of complacency. A few people have actually used that word when reaching out to me, complacency. Sometimes that's how we feel towards the work, but given that you, my friend, are volunteering your precious time to consume this journey with me, I don't think it's coming from you. Usually, sometimes overtly, sometimes just implied, when I hear from people, it's their teammates, their bosses, their clients, somebody else that they have to work with or convince to bring along on this journey. So when they, and we, feel complacent, the work stagnates. And when the name of the game is constant little moments of refreshing the work all the time, well, stagnation is the enemy. So how do we combat that enemy? In a very Avengers Assemble kind of way? Together. We need to show others that the status quo isn't enough so that they come along with us to do better work. And that means we need to improve our ability to affect change in others, to inspire action, whether they're teammates or bosses or clients or customers. We have to bring others along the same journey that we're on together. How? Today, the story of a project created by two people who share a rather important belief for us. Not only can we do something about complacency in others, but we must. Literally everything depends on it. And so, naturally, this duo decided to create a children's book about some sea creatures and a very real case of complacency. It's charming, it's new, it's needed. It's unthinkable. Stories of conventional thinking at work and the people who dare to question it. I'm Jay Akunzo. My name is Sean Callahan, uh, and I am the Senior Manager of Content Marketing at LinkedIn. And the author of a great new children's book. (laughs) Yes, and I am the author of Voting with a Porpoise, among other children's books. So aside from the title being delightful, uh, I think the, the idea that you would do a children's book about voting, for me and my sensibilities, is delightful. But I want to start with a rather big question, which is, 
why is that topic, you know, like voter education for very, very young kids in this case, why is that important and why does that matter to you specifically? I get why it matters overall to the health of a democracy, but why you? Yeah, well, um, well, I'll, I will talk about the health of a democracy first. I think that, you know, when you look at, for example, the 2016 presidential election, whether you're a Donald Trump fan or a Hillary Clinton fan, I think as a, as a member of a democratic republic, uh, this kind of society, you have to be troubled by the numbers around voting. So, you know, about 65 million people voted for Hillary Clinton, about 62 million people voted for Donald Trump. And then among people 18 and older, um, many, many more millions didn't vote for anybody, didn't go to the polls. Um, so more people voted f- to not show up than voted for d- either Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton. And I think that's a huge problem. People in the United States are opting out of their job of voting for president. The problem, Sean believes, is culture. We've created a culture of complacency because it's not on us. We don't have the power. What could we possibly do? Or rather, what could I do? I'm just one person. You know, it's especially among millennials, people are not voting. Um, People over 65 are much more likely to vote than people under 30. And I think that we need to begin to change the way really young people think about our democracy and how to use their voice and the critical importance of voting in making sure that the democracy works in the right way. Sean's background is as a reporter. He manages and edits two different blogs for LinkedIn today. And before that, he worked as a feature writer for a newspaper in Chicago, and he's written for the business press for many years, including some freelance stuff for the New York Times. One of the problems with people not voting is that they allow other people to determine what's going to happen in our government. So politicians, I think, and rightly so, respond to the people who get them elected. And right now, because people aren't going to the polls, people who donate money and and people who the small group of people who are going to the polls, those are the people who determine the direction of our government. I think money has has become much more of a factor, and it certainly becomes much more of a factor the fewer people that vote. Now, if more people voted, I think the politicians would respond to those people because those people are the ones who got them elected. Once you divorce them from Republican policies or Democratic policies, most Americans, by like a 60 to 40 kind of spread, are for what most people would call progressive ideas like universal health care, Medicaid for all, higher taxes on the wealthy, more funding for schools, things like related to education, either forgiveness of loans, uh, college loans, or much more widespread free tuition. Those kind of things uh, most Americans are in favor of. And if they voted, politicians would, I think, be much more inclined to make those things happen. To solve the problem, Sean partnered with a former colleague of his named Russell Glass. He's the founder of a teletherapy company, Ginger, and he sits on the board of Rock the Vote. 
He previously ran LinkedIn's marketing solutions business after selling his prior startup to LinkedIn in 2014. A lot of our problems are caused by low voting rates. And and what I mean by that is that if you look at the fringe politics that are taking place, where a small percentage of the country is able to, in effect, hijack uh, the government and the policies of the nation, uh, because the majority that don't agree with those policies don't show up. And that has all kinds of ramifications from things that we need to try to solve for, you know, whether it be climate change issues, to education issues, to our, our inability to solve for some of the budget deficit issues we have, like all of these different things get affected and thus the future of our country and our children get affected by this problem. When you combine Russ's background as a product leader and entrepreneur with Sean's background as a storyteller, you perfectly sum up the issue with so many young people not voting. Russ explains, there's a product problem and a story problem. Let's start with the product problem. So voting is actually a tough thing to do. And it's particularly tough for this generation who have been on mobile devices their entire life, adult lives. They've, they've an entirely online generation. They don't use mail. They don't even often know where the post office is or where you'd buy stamps. Uh, they don't own printers. But Voting is entirely an offline-based activity. So there's a dissonance there um, just in the product itself, right? It's a difficult, high-friction product experience. But but the second issue that I saw was was a narrative problem. And, you know, product development, you you, you think about how you overcome friction with narrative, right? What you're trying to do is convince people uh, to act in a way you want them to act. And so you, you've, got, you've got to have a narrative that resonates with them. The friction in this experience was so high that the narratives weren't strong enough to convince them to go vote and overcome those frictions. So how do you solve those problems? Well, first, you've got to, you've got to reduce the friction as much as possible. Uh, and second, you have to create narratives that are going to resonate to overcome whatever friction remains. And the narratives weren't working. These go vote narratives weren't resonating. When you merely tell somebody to go do something, if they're not already really inclined to do that, they probably won't act. Likewise, when you just hand out facts, the things that are wrong currently and need solving or the things that could go wrong if you don't act, again, it's not enough to sway people. This is really troubling, but it makes sense that people don't act just based on the facts, no matter how dire those facts are. Why do so many people use single-use plastics, even though we know intellectually that they're bad for the environment? Why do we as individuals eat unhealthy foods or stay up late and get bad sleep or drink or smoke? Intellectually, we understand these things aren't healthy. Over in Japan, there's something even more alarming happening. There's a fish called fugu. That's right, a puffer fish called fugu, F-U-G-U. It's a poisonous fish that is considered a delicacy to eat. It's expensive. It's really, really expensive. And yet tons of people pay tons of money to eat it. Even though if the chef nicks just the wrong little piece and that ends up just slipping into your sushi, you could end up in the hospital or worse. So why do we do all these things? Why do we make decisions that go against what we understand to be true factually? It's because intellectually understanding something isn't enough to spur action. We must also be emotionally invested and on board. 
Only by playing to people's emotions are we capable of changing behavior. It's like shouting, buy our product over and over again in your marketing, which, by the way, many organizations continue to do, and all of us look at that and say, why the heck are you doing that? It just doesn't work. There's this old concept in environmental conservation that for years formed the backbone of people trying to save plant and animal species. The concept is called Homo economicus, the rational man. Homo economicus basically states that people are purely logical creatures. And so if you want to change their behavior, you better offer the right carrots and sticks, rewards and punishments. Today, we're seeing the debunking of that idea, not only in conservation efforts, which are giving way to more enjoyable, interactive, and community-based movements, but we're also seeing across the private sector more and more companies appealing to the emotions, the desire for belonging and purpose and excitement, whether that's brands that are getting woke or merely just more and more companies embracing the need to tell actual stories. You roll all of this together and you create one very powerful insight. If we want to combat complacency in ourselves or others, the task must feel intrinsic, not telic. And I think that's our key insight. Intrinsic, not telic. Telic, T-E-L-I-C. So what does telic mean and what does that have to do with a very persuasive porpoise? We'll explore both after this quick break. Hey, it's me again, uh, and I wanted to tell you about Marketing Showrunners. It's my education and community platform that I've just launched to help advance the craft and creativity of marketers making shows. Here's the deal. Marketing used to be about grabbing attention, a few moments of time, a message delivered. But today, marketing is about holding attention, subscribers, not views, trust, not transactions, relationships and experience and word of mouth, not hacks and sheets and get-rich-quick schemes. And it turns out there's a vehicle for achieving all that, for holding attention, for living out this new marketing mandate. It's called a show. And we're living through the rise of the marketing showrunner, a new breed of marketer uniquely equipped to move a company from caring about traffic to audience to community. So if you believe what we believe, I hope you'll visit marketingshowrunners.com and subscribe. Marketingshowrunners.com. Oh yeah, and... Here's what we believe at the end of the day. Marketing isn't about those who arrive. Marketing is about those who stay. Thank you so much for paying attention to this little ad. And and as a fellow marketing showrunner, welcome to your community. Please subscribe and give me all the feedback you can. Let's build something special to learn and grow together. That's marketingshowrunners.com. Okay, back to the story. Sean and Russ had been circling this issue of the lack of young voter turnout in our country, and they realized that while there was a product problem to address, there was also a narrative problem, a story problem. Demanding people go vote over and over again is simply not as effective as sharing a story. And so the pair decided to create a children's book to solve that problem. Yes, a children's book in order to remove complacency and inertia before it even sets in in kids. And that kid's book is called Voting with a Porpoise. Voting with a Porpoise. Perfect. So there's a pot of dolphins that have lived in the same reef for a long time when suddenly the supply of tasty little fish providing the pod their food 
is gone. So they have to decide what to do. Are they going to stick it out in the reef or are they going to, as a group, move to another reef or another part of the ocean where maybe there are more fish? And so they debate about how they'll decide. Do they let their leader make a decision for everyone or do they let the group decide? Ultimately, they decide to put it to a vote with the help of Petey the Porpoise. And at first, there's a a lot, some of the group don't want him to vote because he's not a dolphin. But he votes, he casts the deciding ballot, and they they go off and... Whoa, whoa, whoa. spoilers much? Let's talk about the little creative decisions that go into making something like voting with a porpoise. So one of the things I understand from when I first learned about the book is that it wasn't originally set in the ocean, right? So talk to me about that and any of the other like little changes and debates that you went through. Yeah, this this book was... A complete collaboration, like almost like a dream collaboration. Rush and I uh, have worked together before. In fact, we wrote a book called uh, "The Big Data Dr- Driven Business," which is a you know like a serious business book about how data is informing marketing these days and transforming it. And that was that was quite a different book than the one we ended up writing. Um, in voting with a porpoise. So Russ approached me, as I mentioned a little earlier, and said, "Let's do a children's book about voting." And he said, here's my initial concept is maybe it's a group of animals. Maybe there's a bear. Maybe there's uh, some other animals, some tigers or something. And they're in the jungle and they are running out of water and they have to figure out what they're going to do. Are they going to dig a well? Are they going to go somewhere else? Um, How are they going to solve this problem? And an election, you know, comes to the fore as the as the way that large groups of people sort of solve Um, problems. Sean thought about that. And he said, you know, I've had this pun on my mind for a potential kids book with a porpoise. And books with great titles tend to do pretty well. So he moved this idea to the ocean. And he wrote the copy initially in prose. And he liked the story. But he said, you know, the books that I read to my own kids that are rhymed or in verse, those are the ones that they want to read over and over. Those are the ones that have the sort of staying power. So he said, um, I'm going to take a crack at turning this into rhyme. And uh, it didn't take him long, maybe 24 hours. And he had a rhymed version back to me. We went back and forth a few times. I made very little changes. The thing was, I thought, great. And so it was like this great collaboration um, that I think you get better at as you get older and you're not sort of, I remember being in my teens and twenties and being very, very jealously guarded of my ideas. And I think as I've gotten older, I I can see the, the real value of networking and collaborating with people. You usually come up with something better. Sean and Russ might not know it, but they'd found a way to solve for something that game theorists call a telic activity. There's that word again, telic. T-E-L-I-C, telic. I think it's time to address this idea. Telic means done to a definite end. In other words, a chore. When something becomes a chore, you're less likely to seek it out or even do it in the first place, even if you know intellectually that you should. The room is a mess, a salad would be better to eat, or you should go and vote. Those things can feel like chores. You'd rather just blink your eyes and be done, and so it's really difficult to convince lots and lots of people to do them, or do them well, or seek to improve them. I first encountered this term, telic, when working at a small startup in Boston back in 2012. 
Our product were these game-like branded experiences. I was head of content, and I had to write about the power of game mechanics. Man, was that a buzzy phrase back then. Every marketer and their mom wanted to know about game theory and game mechanics and gamification. Anyways, doing my homework, I stumbled upon this notion of telic, which game developers totally dread. Think about playing a game like Super Mario. Let's say you keep dying in the same spot in the level, and to reach that spot the next time you try, you have to go through the same first few motions of that level. The first time you played that, it was quite enjoyable. But the next time, and the next time, and the next time, it started feeling like a chore. You're like, okay, uh, I gotta jump here, go down this tube, jump on that turtle, get this mushroom, and now I'm back to the place that I actually want to play. So the first time you played that level, that's what's called intrinsic. It's the opposite of telic. You were intrinsically motivated to play it. You enjoyed it for its own sake, not for some end result. You were emotionally on board with doing it, and so the game was enjoyable. But once it becomes telic, you stop enjoying the game. And so what do game developers do? They bake in a little halfway flag that if you touch it, you can just start midway through. This helps remove the feeling of the game becoming a chore. Now, obviously, when you develop a game, you have to be paranoid that something feels telic because the whole point is for it to feel enjoyable. But as storytellers, as creators, as people who hope to persuade and influence and spur action in others, we should also worry about something that feels telic all the time. We should want something to feel intrinsic to the audience, to our peers, to our bosses, to our clients. Because when something is intrinsic, they'll seek it out more. They'll feel motivated and inspired to take action. So when something is important and big, like climate change, or eating right, or doing the work instead of seeking a hack, or yeah, voting, when stuff is that important and big, we can't merely demand that others do it. Even if that's our impulse as communicators, go vote is a terrible way to spur action, even if you are convinced that you should go vote, because you find it intrinsically motivating, you believe in it, and you want people to do it. But changing the story in the minds of others by sharing better stories into the world, now that's how you convey the importance of that action. That's how you drive people to act themselves. That removes complacency and causes someone to get invested, not just intellectually, but emotionally. Sean and Russ know that there's already a story in the minds of voters that needs to be changed. It's a slow, hard march towards a better story from here, but it starts by understanding this isn't about facts, this is about combating a bad story, with a good one. So what is that bad story that younger voters often tell themselves? Well, there's a couple different flavors. This idea that my vote doesn't matter is, is, a, is a big part of this. You hear this all the time. Well, it doesn't matter if I show up to vote. It's not going to change the outcome. Or, you know, my state uh, is going to go this way no matter what I do. Uh, that's, that's a nefarious issue. Uh, there's also the notion that politicians are all the same. That, you know, uh, I don't trust any of them. Which, again, it is, it, a lot of that narrative has been intentionally seeded over the last few decades to make people sort of disenchanted with the process and with their politicians. That gets reinforced by some politicians who are terrible, right? But that uh, introduces further narrative as well as product friction. And here's how Russ and Sean and others who work with them started to reframe this problem that was so deeply seeded. How should we think about our children? and what narratives they should grow up with in order to increase voting rates. And, and what's interesting about it is a couple things. One is if you look at, for instance, Minnesota, perennially the highest voting state in the country, 
and their youth vote at far higher rates than most of the country. Uh, and so if you if you look at what they do there, it, it's very cultural. There, there There is a culture of voting. So even in their high schools, when they do high school votes, elections, they're using real voting machines. So they're, they're, they're creating the experience for people before they're even eligible to vote to know what voting is all about and to feel voting and experience voting. Uh, it's a family kind of a thing there that you just go vote. And so, you know, my, my sort of notion was, okay, well, how, how do we convince kids or at least educate them about the importance of voting in society? Uh, and like, kids grow up fast. Like you hear that as a trite thing, but you know, a, an eight-year-old, there's two presidential cycles that they're not going to be voting in before they're going to start voting. You know, so, so it happens really fast. And so it, it isn't even that long before these kids reading these, you know, this book are going to be actually applying. Our goal here is not necessarily to make a bunch of money. Uh, all the profits from this will go to nonprofit causes related to voting. Our goal here is really, can we create a platform that schools and parents include in their education of their children. The 2018 midterm elections in the U.S. was an election that was pretty historic by all accounts. More women were elected to Congress, more minorities than in the history of of ever. In the history of ever. And during that election, the youth turnout was a huge part of the overall voting. An estimated 31% of eligible voters between 18 and 29 actually voted. In the midterms, not a presidential race, the midterms. Now that 31% leaves a lot to be desired, but 31% was also an increase of 50% compared to the last midterms. That is a, that is a result that none of us thought was possible. To me, stories have power, like unbelievable power. Let's talk about one political story, which is um, Uncle Tom's Cabin, which even Abraham Lincoln thought Uh, led to the Civil War, led to changing people's minds about the humanity of African-American slaves. So stories have power. Like, let's talk about the Yankees versus the Cubs, right? The Yankees have this story of we are going to win. We are a winning organization. And when they're down in the ninth inning, they still think they're going to win. When the Cubs, like 2003, when the Cubs were in the National League Championship Series and they were winning, they just needed five more outs, and then the Bartman ball thing happened, and then the shortstop made an error, and things just snowballed from there. That is a culture of things are going to go wrong. And everybody in the stadium thought it, and then soon all the players thought it. And it took a long time, and it took... It was an amazing effort for the Cubs to actually finally win the World Series and get over that story of them, people wearing that uniform, finding a way to lose. So for me, having a story like this, voting with a porpoise, is an effective way for getting people, kids, to think about voting and democracy in a different way. Better than saying coming in and having a little unit saying like, uh, you know, here's how democracy works. Here's why you should vote. I think, put, you know, having 
Porpoises and dolphins talk about this is probably a far more entertaining way to get across the idea. And it sticks in your brain, you know, that beginning, middle, and end sticks in your brain much more than sort of rote learning does. That's probably been the most satisfying part of this is that um, people love it. Even starting with voting with a porpoise, you get a smile, <laughs> you know? We get pictures sent in all the time of the kid reading the book or, or parents laying in bed reading it to their kids. I have a great picture of um, somebody who read it to her pre-K class. Uh, she reached out and said, I just want to let you know I loved your book and I, I did a whole lesson plan on it and uh, taught it to my pre-K class. And she sent a picture along with it and she, she's sitting there you know, with a book in her lap and she's got probably 10 kids surrounding her and they're all together raising their hand like they're voting. That was, that was pretty special. So I, I hope people like this book because it's good, well-executed, funny, and it has a good message. And I hope people like it because it is sort of different than the vast negativity that surrounds voting, elections, our government. And I think that the amazing amount of information there is about elections in this country sort of intimidates people. And they they sort of think like, I don't know the right answer to this question, so I'm going to opt out. Well, you don't know the right answer to, you know, buying uh, the right phone, probably, um, or buying the right bread? Do you get gluten-free? Do you get this other kind? But we're able to make a reasonably educated choice on, on who to vote for. And I think way too many people are opting out. And I think also this negativity about the government, I think the government is an incredibly positive force for good um, overall. Obviously, the United States government has done some things that a lot of us disagree with, but it's also built the Transcontinental Railroad built the interstate highway system, has this amazing system to um, collect money and use it for good, I think. And we need to think about that more and we need to participate in it more because the more we participate in it, the more we vote, the more we make our voices heard, the better off our government is going to be and the more it's going to reflect the will of the American people. When complacency kicks in, or apathy, or inertia, when we face that unwavering will to keep things the same, or unwilling party in the face of change, it's so easy to just give up and say, well, I gave them the facts, they're not changing, and we're going to stay stagnant. But the problem isn't the other people. I think the problem is us. See, the solution isn't to force change upon others. It's not enough to stand on a soapbox and demand it, nor is it enough to hand out a bunch of facts. It's not enough to tell people of the danger or the errors of their ways. If all of that were actually enough, everybody would be vaccinated, nobody would use addictive drugs, everybody would remove single-use plastics from their lives, and a whole hell of a lot more young people would vote. No, there's a better way that has nothing to do with facts and figures to be persuasive. But to embrace this idea, we need to rethink what we're usually told being persuasive in the workplace means. To remember this shift, let's rethink a famous quote as a handle we can grab hold of. The late great American engineer, W. Edwards Deming, once said this, In God we trust, all others bring data. 
Deming is revered. He helped reinvigorate the auto industry in both Japan and the U.S., among many other accomplishments, and his thinking and his heuristics for engineering are lauded even still. In God we trust, all others bring data. But here's the thing. We need to be consistently creative and consistently resonant with our work. And to do that, we have to master the art of reinvention. A major barrier to doing that, to constantly refreshing our work, is complacency. And the way to combat complacency isn't just to show somebody else the facts, the figures, the data. So with apologies to Mr. Deming, let's update that saying right now. In God we trust, all others bring a story. I have to say thank you to Sean and Russ for writing this book. I think it's such a good cause, and I have a copy actually sitting right next to my wall here at my home office. It's in my daughter's room on her shelf right now, voting with a porpoise. I also need to thank you for supporting this show. I don't ask for any donations from listeners ever, nor do I make any money on sponsors directly. Instead, I've decided to try my hand at teaching this stuff, the craft of creating shows for marketers. So if you're a marketer or a business owner and you want to learn to create original series, whether that's audio or video, whether that's an interview show or a narrative style show or something creative and different and new that you concoct, whatever the case, I want to invite you to check out marketingshowrunners.com. That is my new education and community-based platform. Uh, It's starting small, but I really do want to connect everybody in this community, practitioners, people from outside the echo chamber, leaders, uh, vendors selling technology. And so this all means I need your help, your feedback, and your contributions. Marketingshowrunners.com to subscribe there, or you can click the subscribe link in the show notes. Until next time, remember, there's a whole hell of a lot of conventional thinking out there. But maybe, just maybe, think for yourself. I guess what I'm saying is, trust your intuition. We're back next week with another Creative Cafe. See ya. See ya.